HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Hello, welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, isakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my good guests. My guest today is Greg Lam, who has a popular YouTube channel called Like Where I'm From. He has created over 200 videos since 2015, and his channel has more than 1.6 million subscribers. And Greg is based in Japan, and in his insightful videos, he covers a wide variety of topics ranging from Japanese breakfast, how a ramen shop operates, why Japanese bathrooms are the best, to Japanese social issues like minorities in Japan. In each video, he accurately and analytically captures the very ordinary aspects of life in Japan, but these daily matters are the most representative of the uniqueness of Japanese culture. Even though I grew up in Japan, I always learned something new from Greg's videos, and uh, his messages make me think more deeply about what Japan is. So today we'll discuss why Greg moved to Japan, why he decided to start the YouTube channel called Life Where I'm From, what is unique about Japanese culture, the underlying mindset and the philosophies of Japanese people that makes the country unique, and much, much more. But before you start, Japan is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Also, I have a quick announcement. And there is an upcoming live webinar organized by Japan Society in New York on Wednesday, December the 7th, in two days. The title is Seasonality, Superfoods, and Other Secrets of Japanese Cuisine. I'll be moderating the discussion between two Japanese food experts. 
One is Yumi Komazaya, the author of Japanese Superfoods, Learn the Secrets of Healthy Eating and Longevity, the Japanese Way. And also Nancy Shingleton Hachisu, author of Japanese Farm Food Japan, the cookbook and other cookbooks. And it would be a fun event to learn about Japanese traditional food culture and that it's even more important to keep us healthy in our modern life. And thanks to Japan Society, tickets are free. So please go to japansociety.org and go to events and programming or calendar. Again, the title is Seasonality, Superfoods, and Other Secrets of Japanese Cuisine on Wednesday, December 7th. Uh, it's a live webinar. So I hope to see you there. Now, let's start a conversation with Greg Lam. Hello, Greg. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. So uh, your voice, I, I listen to your voice so many times on YouTube, so I can't believe I'm listening to you directly. <laughs> so, uh, so to get to know you, uh, where are you from and what did you eat when you grew up? Okay. Yeah. Where am I from? I was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I don't know if a lot of people know where that's located, but it's kind of in the center of North America, if you want to visually put it. It's like in the prairies. And I think I grew up eating what was fairly standard Canadian food. So we'd have like roast chicken in the oven with veggies and potatoes, or maybe some spaghetti with meat sauce, or some shepherd's pie. Um, but maybe something unique that not most Canadians would eat uh, is West Indian food. Uh, so my parents were born in the Car uh, West Indies, which is in the Caribbean. And uh, so we'd ha occasionally have West Indian curry with roti. And so that's my favorite type of curry. I find Japanese curry is actually a bit too sweet for my taste. Um, and my dad has a Chinese background, so sometimes he'd make wonton soup growing up. Um, and I really like wonton soup, but when he made it, uh, and I was a kid, you know, he'd have like these big chunks of ginger he'd put in. So I'd accidentally bite into this huge chunk of ginger and... Uh, that wasn't very fun when I was young, but I, I love ginger now. <laughs> right. So it's totally a quiet taste, but it's amazing how diverse your palate became at such a very young age. I was the pickiest eater too when I was a kid. Um, so in Manitoba, there's not a lot. I mean, there's some like river and lake fish, but uh, I don't think Manitoba's a big fish eating place. So I didn't eat too much fish growing up. Um, but my uncles and aunties and whatnot, they grew up in the Caribbean, so I think they ate a lot more fish. And so they just loved all the fish every single time. But I, I couldn't eat it until I was an adult, basically. Mm, right. And now you have a, no choice. You're in Japan. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> so then you moved to Japan in 2013. So why did you move to Japan? Okay. Um, that could be either a short story or a long story. Maybe I'll give like a two-minute version <laughs> or a three-minute version of that. <laughs> Uh, well, my wife and I got married in, in 2001, and when we got married, uh, we were really young, so we thought, oh, we'll just live five years in Japan, five years in Canada, and just keep on flipping that back and forth. Uh, obviously, the life doesn't really work that way where you can do it like that, so we ended up spending, uh, I think, 12 years living in Canada, and then in 2011, they had the, uh, the big earthquake and tsunami. And that really kind of brought home to my wife that she wanted to be with her family. And we'd always talked about going, living in Japan and raising our kids in both cultures. And so, you know, after a bit of preparation in 2013, we finally moved to Japan. Um, I guess that only took one minute. <laughs> mm, right. Well, that's interesting, right? Some people decide not to 
live in Japan, but some people do the other way. So it's a kind of uh, test to commit to a certain culture. And then I'm glad you did because now you have amazing uh, YouTube channels. So, um, so, but you must have been already familiar with Japanese culture through your way. And uh, however, living in Japan must be very different experience. So what was your first impression of Japanese culture when you moved there? And what was your adjustment process to it? Right. So when I first visited Japan was in 2000. And before 2013, I'd visited about, I think, five, six times, you know, for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks at a time. So visiting is obviously quite a bit different from living there. But on my first visit in 2000, I was just absolutely amazed by everything. Um, in, comparison to in comparison to Canada, everything was so different, like the scale of the buildings in the you know, various downtown areas in Tokyo, and just the, um, the sprawl of everything in the Tokyo metropolitan area. I mean, from coming in from like Chiba, if you know Japan, like if you're going to Narita Airport, the international airport, you're coming in from Chiba, you're going to Tokyo, you start seeing houses and um, density even before you hit the, you know, Tokyo itself. And so you just, you don't realize how like densely populated the place is until you go there. And there's just so many people living in the Tokyo metropolitan area. It's uh, about the same population of Canada. So um that was just really impressive. And I had always liked bicycling or cycling uh, growing up in Canada, you know, just riding around the streets. But as an adult, I kind of stopped, um, especially living in Vancouver, where it's quite hilly. Um, but in Japan, I re rediscovered my love of cycling again, just on cheap commuter bikes, because you can just easily cycle anywhere around. And I, I thought that was so great. And I loved being able to shop um close by either walk there or bike there i love taking the trains not having to own a car um so there's so many new experiences that i could have but in terms of adjusting when we when i actually moved that was a bit different because um every time i had visited japan before i had noticed i thought i had some allergies because i'd wake up in the morning and my nose would be sniffly and maybe a bit of a sore throat and so I was really concerned about the, the air quality or maybe it was the tatami mats or something that I was allergic to and what would I do for work? Um, well, it turns out that the air quality is fine in Tokyo and there is no allergies to tatami mats. What had happened was I'd usually visited Japan in the wintertime around Christmas and in my wife's parents' house, they, they live in the older house and so the very thin walls, very little insulation, if any, and no central heating. So, you know, at nighttime, it could get like, you know, five or 10 degrees in the room. And so <laughs> it was just much colder than what I was used to. And, you know, being a Canadian, I thought like, oh, I'm used to the cold. It's fine. And um, but I guess we're not used to the cold inside of homes. They're usually centrally heated. So it's pretty warm inside of Canadian homes in the winter. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, I think uh, you know, of course, um 
you know, listeners, don't get, get it wrong. There are, you know, usually um, the modern houses are warm, but I think if you go to Kyoto temples and then walk around in the completely wooden structure, it's freezing. And uh, that's what you basically experienced the first time. So that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and so the modern homes Japan, they do have insulation. There's a, you know, there's kind of, I feel like a myth online that, you know, Japanese homes aren't insulated, but um, no, modern homes are insulated. But central heating is generally reserved to the northern areas of Japan, like maybe in uh, in uh, Hokkaido or in some parts of the Tohoku region. Um, so, because the a lot of the heating and air conditioning is done room by room, um, some people even if they're sleeping in the room at night, they just won't use a heater, um, and it, you know it can get down pretty cold sometimes and so they just like bundle up more that's i feel like that's a common attitude mm. in japan versus yeah. you know in canada you just leave your heating on the whole like are you your 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 basically your hvac system is on year round for uh, i think a lot of people so it's like they just want to keep it a standard whether it's like 21 or 22 degrees celsius I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. I'm sorry. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's a great point, right? Because uh, the heating system mindset, like, you know, in Japan, they tend to be more uh, ceiling lights versus floor lighting, like here in New York City. So like little things, but it's a big thing surrounding your, you know, living environment. So, yeah. Um, so let me ask you about this amazing YouTube channel uh, that you have, like where I'm from and to which you have over 1.6 million subscribers. So what is the theme of the channel and why did you start the channel? Right, uh, I guess they're kind of, they used to be the same thing, but they're slightly divergent now. I see the theme of life where I'm from is, I mean, right now, the most of the videos are about learning about Japanese culture and I sometimes say I do that through showing what everyday life is like. Um, but I think if people don't watch the videos, they don't understand. They might think it's it's vlogs, which it mostly isn't. I try to deep a little, dig a little bit deeper. Um, so maybe more accurately, some of them are like mini documentaries and trying to explain things like what this thing is like or how this thing is done, um, answering questions about Japanese culture. Uh, originally, the, the channel is called Life Where I'm From. So it was supposed to be a conversation between uh, kids, uh, primarily like my kids, kind of being the, the main kids, uh, showing what life is like around the world. And so it'd be a conversation between, say, my kids and kids in, in different countries. And they're showing like, okay, what is my bathroom like? Or what is my breakfast like? Or what is a park like? in my neighborhood or what is my home like and then you'd compare both cultures and see the similarities and see the differences and learn something and um one of the big reasons that i continue to do the channel and why i started the channel is because i think there is a lot of learning opportunities when you see something that's done differently in, in a different country um, but also seeing the things that are done similarly and um learning something that is different from you for the first time can be maybe shocking or you're surprised and you can react a certain way. But after you see it a few times, you get used to it and it's kind of normalized. So an example I often give to people is like eating natto. 
if you didn't grow up eating natto, it might look really weird or smell weird, uh, have a weird texture. But to, to Japanese kids, eating natto is a fairly normal thing. Most Japanese people like eating natto. Um, and my kids like eating natto. But when you know kids would see that watching the YouTube channel, or my, our YouTube channel, and see what Japanese breakfast is like, and they see my daughter eating natto, they're like, oh, what is this kind of like weird, gross, sticky thing she's eating? Um, but other kids are like, oh, I want to try this. Like, what is she eating? <laughs> and then I've heard from, you know, many people, they're like, oh, we went out and bought natto and my kid loves it. And yeah, so you introduce something new to people. Mm, right. Well, by the way, listeners who are not familiar with natto, natto is basically a fermented uh, soybeans. And uh, it has a very strong odor depending on what kind of yeast or bacteria you know, like house yeast, but, um, well, <laughs> my father hated it. So up until I became an adult, it was banned from my house and I've never <laughs> seen it, literally. I never opened the box of natto until like 20 or something. So, yeah, so it's a level of hate, but now health community all over the world, now it's just the best health food. So I think you're introducing something very precious to the world, to your kids too. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I still haven't got used to it yet. Um, no, like sashimi was was fine. It took me a few times to to get into sashimi, but natto. I've tried it on several occasions. Still, just nah. Yeah, <laughs> well, the keys to come up with like uh, you know mustard and wasabi and thing, and I I yeah, love yeah. it now. So, <laughs> um, well, my kids love it. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, because it's, they got used to it from a young age, right? So. Yeah. Right. And you also have a second YouTube channel called Right Where I'm From X. So what is the difference from uh, where I'm from between X and uh, regular? Well, <laughs> right where I'm from. Right. I mean, honestly, right now, X, you can just call it an extra channel. It's just, you know, whatever doesn't fit on, on the main channel, I can put on the extra channel. Um, but originally, I had created it because uh, the channel was mainly, you know, for, for kids or for young young people. And so I wanted to handle some topics that are a little bit um, more mature in content, um, like talking about disabilities in Japan um, or talking about nudity in Japan. And so I decided to create a second channel that could talk about those adult topics as well. But um, eventually I started putting some of my more like, I guess, mini documentary work on, on the main channel and it, people really liked it there. And so I just ended up putting most of my content on the main channel. Mm, so it's in the direction of merging the two, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Although, I mean, ideally, I mean, I don't know. It might have been good just to keep both channels separate, you know, like having like a family-oriented channel. And then not like my the topics on the X channel or any of the topics I do are not family-oriented, but they're just a little more maybe complex or deep. Mm. So like, you know, an eight-year-old kid wouldn't, you know, um, maybe get too much from the homeless documentary, whereas, you know, a 15-year-old kid, for sure. Mm, right. Okay. And then uh, in the life where I'm from, the regular one, you have over 200 videos, and uh, which you accumulated since 2015. And it's a short period of time, I think. It's 100 videos. That's a lot. So how do you choose such insightful topics? The topics, actually, they come fairly easily I always have a list of them um, and it's it I find it easy because you're just trying to answer questions um, so at the start it's it's are you trying to show people something as well 
So if, uh, for example, my family saw some food we're eating in Japan, they're like, oh, what is that? And so we're just asking, answering the question of, oh, what is that we're eating for breakfast or for lunch or for dinner? Um, or how is something made? So we go to a factory and see how knives are made or see how soba is made. Um, or for the homeless video I mentioned is, so why do the homeless in Tokyo look different from the homeless I see in Vancouver? And so I did a five-part series trying to figure out or answer the question of why do the homeless uh, appear different in, in both countries? So it's just answering questions, and there's just a lot of questions you can answer. Mm. Right. Well, the um, I really find always, like I said earlier, find something very educative, like educational, from your video because I think you know very fresh-eyed, and Japanese people don't even think about why or you know something um, underneath the surface. So yeah, I think you you really shed a fresh light on something which is pretty important and representative of Japanese culture. So yeah, I, I really appreciate how you, you keep making great videos. So thank you. Thank you. I actually, I find it um, interesting where sometimes I know a lot about a very specific topic or like a, a niche of a topic where, like you said, maybe a lot of Japanese people don't think about it or don't know it, but then I, I'm sure there are so many basic things about Japanese life or Japanese culture that I still just don't understand. <laughs> mm, yeah, well, you think about it. Probably I don't understand either, but people don't think about it. That's the really the point of, I think, the insight that you, I think you have a very good journalistic mindset when you look at uh, any events or happenings in the society. So anyway, so... We will take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll dive into the mindset and the philosophies behind the uniqueness of Japanese culture. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese ship knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. The knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Coin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Aki Katayama, and my guest today is Greg Lam, who has a popular YouTube channel called Right Where I'm From. He has created over 200 videos since 2015, and his channel has more than 1.6 million subscribers. So, for listeners who have not watched your YouTube videos, could you give us some examples of your favorite videos? Uh, sure. Um, well, early on the channel, we had a lot of family videos, and that was my kids explaining what life is like in Japan. 
Um, so some of the favorite videos are just um, having fun with the kids because, you know, the kids were, were kids when I filmed that, um, like under 10 years old. And so they just really have fresh eyes when they're seeing everything and they have a unique way of explaining things. Um, so if we're, for example, my, my daughter and uh, her cousin, they had a, uh, they tried to draw their families and, and seeing the, the art style of a Japanese kid versus, or some, a kid, I, a kid who grew up in Japan versus a kid who grew up in Canada, um, it's it's really interesting like the color of the sun they choose are you know the way they draw their house or the way they draw the the, the faces of their family members um or um again my 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 niece and my daughter they made lunch and so they made chahan for lunch like a fried rice and just seeing them make that and present that that's just uh really cute and fun um so any of the that's just a personal thing of mine because you know they're they're my, my my kids and my family so it's kind of uh like looking into your past and having some really good memories captured on video um for other videos uh one of my favorite videos i've done is japanese school lunch and it's my favorite for a couple reasons um one is i just really appreciate japanese school lunch and for those that don't know most uh, Japanese uh, elementary schools, they provide school lunch and it's usually designed by a nutritionist and it's often cooked in-house and they'll have a lot of fresh ingredients. And it's uh, very, really, it's, I mean, they can be quite tasty as well as nutritionally balanced. Of course, it depends on your school because some kids might have some, you know, un not so good memories of uh, having to eat this food that they didn't like the taste of and having being forced to eat all of it. Whereas maybe more modern standards now, it's um, they're doing a better job on the taste profile and they're a little more accommodating for different tastes or allergies. Um, but uh, as a parent, it's really nice to know that your kid will go to school and they'll have a nice, you know, healthy nutritional meal. Um, um, and you don't have to make the food yourself. And it's also very affordable. It's just, I believe it's like, uh, oh my goodness. I think it's like, I can't a, remember the rate. Yeah, 219 yen or something, 79 years. Like, I, I was surprised. Uh, and uh, yeah, but I, I really like the video, the Kyushaku. And it's what's amazing. It, it's not just eating lunch, it's about how you behave surrounding the lunch situation. You become very uh, socially responsible like you share you serve you clean up and you thank and all those secrets every day if you do it um you become something something else so you captured it beautifully in your video thank you and um yeah i guess my other favorite part about making that video was that i was actually able to make the video uh because at that point i had made enough videos that i could approach a japanese school and say hey, I've had these other videos, you can trust me inside of the school, and they actually let me film with the kids. Um, so that was kind of a mark of like, okay, they kind of, I, ha I have some credibility. <laughs> and so then after I made that video, then I could show you know, whether I'm working with a, a company or a government or some type of organization, say hey, like, hey, I went to the school and made this type of video, and then I can get more access to different topics that people 
may not normally let, you know, just any person off the street go and film. So um, I really like saw that as kind of like a, um, a milestone in the types of videos I can make. Mm. Uh, and maybe just one last example is um, my Tokyo by train video. Mm. Um, and so that one was just like a, a fun video for me. And I uh, went out in Tokyo to ride all the trains from the very first train in the morning to the last train at night. And that was just sparked by my love of like traveling around trains around Tokyo. And I got to visit so much. And um, it turns out that a lot of viewers really liked the journey as well. And so I, when I read the comments still, people really enjoy that video. So that's, uh, that's nice to be able to do as well, just to have something you're really passionate about and other people sharing that. Mm, right. I really enjoyed the video, Tokyo by Train. And uh, yeah, really show the society and uh, how people behave. And also, I mean, I have to go back to like one quickly, the childcare thing. What a Japanese childcare center is like. And there's one scene, um, little kid, like three years old, like make a mess and you know, the caretaker helps, but that person, that kid has to clean the floor. And it reminds me of the World Cup stadium after the game, Japanese people cleaning up. So that's like <laughs> really like deep-rooted mindset. If you make a mess, you clean up. And that started that childcare center. So that's one of your videos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, um, it's really interesting how young at, of an age they start learning certain traits like cleaning up after yourself right taking responsibility for things I, I noticed between Japanese school and Canadian school when my kids went back to Canada for a few months to study you can just tell like in the classroom like just on the floor like there's you know at the end of the day there's like little papers left around and a little like garbage and it's just really surprising to both my kids and myself that in Japan you'd never see it like that mm. Right. And I think it's just like you said, it's it's taught at a young age and you, you do it all the time constantly. And so it's just become second nature. Mm, right. And uh, if you start at a young age, you don't feel like it's, a, you know, it's just natural. You don't have to think you just do it without hating it. So it was. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was a student in Canada and I heard about Japanese students have to clean the school and I was just horrified. I'm like, oh, my goodness. No, that's the worst in the world. You know, and as a parent, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> right, because they do it together, like your friends. That's kind of like, you know, schoolwork. So anyways, yeah. um, so and also, I mean, you have described many unique aspects of Japanese culture in your videos, of course. And what do you think are the most distinctive elements of Japanese culture? And uh, what do you think is the foundational philosophy or principles behind it? I know it's a big question, but what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if I could answer what the foundational philosophy or the principles behind it are. Um, I think that's like, uh, I think it's getting pretty academic. Um, I, for unique aspects of Japanese culture, uh, the more I live in it, the more I, I feel like I, I can't see it because it becomes normalized to me. Um, but one thing is attention to detail. So that could be in any aspect of life. Uh, with food, you can definitely notice it in how the presentation is. Um, are the care you take in the different ingredients being used and the, and the seasonality of things? Um, and just the mindset of some of the chefs. Um, something I feel like I noticed is 
if some chef is or, or cook or, or whatever is really into a food, they just do, you know, this one food, the one shop. And that's all they do. They don't have ambitions necessarily to open up like franchises and become rich. They're just happy doing this, this one, you know, restaurant and being successful at that. Uh, whereas I find more in like in America and Canada, it might be like, oh, if you're successful with this one restaurant, then you're going to open up more restaurants. You're going to open up um, whether it's a franchise or all these individual restaurants, you know, all over the, the country or the world. That kind of feels like more like the path. So I like that Japanese can have attention to detail in in the food, but also just be happy doing their thing that they're good at. They don't have have to, you know, be mega rich off of something. Mm. Um, another one be thinking of others, and um, it's you know it's the group think versus individual individual think. And uh, sometimes I feel this is a, is a pro and a con. I think I like it about 80% of the time and maybe 20% of the time <laughs> I prefer the individual thinking. Um, but, you know, like with example, with the train system and whatnot and lining up for trains and uh, everyone following the rules, it works quite well to um, have those trains running on time. Um, and when you're thinking of others on the train, you know, it could be very quiet on Japanese trains. Um, and so it's, I find it pleasant to ride on. And then when people watch the videos, they notice that a lot of the Japanese cities are relatively clean uh, in comparison to their cities. And I think that's also, you know, like you said, when you're growing up, you learn about it in school, how to clean up after yourself. But I think it all, it's also like all the different um, parts of the society have to come together to make sure it's clean. So it's the the people who are clearing the garbage, but it's also the local neighborhood groups, and it's also the individuals cleaning in front of their house. Um, there's so many aspects to do it, but everyone's kind of thinking of like what's the best for you know the society or for everyone. But mm. maybe in a more negative aspect, they're they're just thinking like I don't want to be the problem, right? I don't want to cause trouble. I don't want people to think badly about me. So this is why I'm doing this, you know. Mm. Versus, um, you know, if you're looking at a positive light, they're just like, oh, I want to do something great for, you know, my my town or my neighborhood. Um, so I'm sure there's people that think that way, but there's also people who just don't want to be embarrassed, you know, don't want to stand out. Mm, right. So that's really clearly um, the both sides of the coin. And yeah, I heard um, like a disaster uh, situation. Japanese people quickly create a kind of system uh, allocating this person's wall, this is a wall, and it's kind of like disaster, but they try to make it manageable. That's what I was impressed by when uh, the Tohoku earthquake happened. But by the same token, like you just you said, you have to sacrifice uh, who you are sometimes, and it could be suffocating. So... I think, unfortunately, uh, suicide rate in Japan is very high because they are depressed by <laughs> suppressing themselves. So, yeah, this definitely there's no perfect society. But so some people, I think it's very comfortable once you know um, where to fit in and you don't have to always. I think society is changing gradually, too. Probably you know more than I do about the recent changes, but... 
Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, well, thank you. It was a big question, so I feel like, yeah. <laughs> can I ask you this? Um, well, a note on the suicides is that it used to be quite high in the early 2000s, but it's it's been going down consistently. I don't know if COVID changed anything, <laughs> but as of just before COVID, it, it was on a downward trend. And actually, I believe America now has overtaken Japan in terms of you know a higher suicide rate per capita. Um, so it's uh, it's quite interesting, um, and yeah, sorry. Yeah, well, I'm curious. I really have to know why what's happening, which is amazing. So um, I think the suicide rate was linked to the um, the, the economic crisis with the bubble popping in Japan. I think it was the late '80s, early '90s, and then you know with the economy not doing so well, and then people taking their lives because of that. They couldn't support their families and whatnot, and they you know, felt shame or just thought that was the, the way out. But um, uh, with my homeless video, doing research for that, um, a lot of, they opened up the Seikatsu Hogo, so it's like the um, kind of like welfare system to a lot more males. And so they provide them, you know, uh, a certain uh, money every single month and they can afford a place to live afford to eat and so people would be homeless now have a place to live and so i think that helped stem some of the suicide as well mm. um, but also just getting people off the streets yeah mm, interesting okay and uh so also um tell us about the documentary project you had so in addition to regular videos you made a two-part documentary called being japanese so what is the theme and why did you make it Right. Well, being Japanese was answering the question of question of what is it to be Japanese? And I suppose this started with with my kids, because my kids are, you know, you can call them half Japanese, half Canadian, or you can call them Japanese Canadian, or you can call them Japanese and Canadian. Um, there's a lot of different ways to call them. But in Canada, I, I think you can use a variety of terms and they're fairly accepted. Um, like my kids can just say I'm Canadian and I think that's that's fine. People will accept that. Like I could call myself, Cana myself Canadian, although my parents were from the West Indies and my mom had a, a Scottish background, whereas my dad had a Chinese background. Um, I just called myself Canadian and no one questioned that. But and so my kids call themselves Canadian. I don't think anyone would question them in, in Canada. But if you go to Japan and they just said, oh, I'm Japanese straight, I don't think it's as easily accepted. Um, you know, they'd often be called hafu. Mm. And hafu is just, you know, half of something. So in this case, it'd be, I guess, half Canadian, half Japanese. And so you know, why is it in Canada, they could be just Canadian, but in, in Japan, they couldn't be ja just Japanese, they might have to be like hafu. Um, and so it's exploring that question, not only for like, for people who have of mixed origins, but also just Japanese people who perhaps lived overseas for a few years during the elementary school, and then came back to Japan, they're called kikokushujo, returnees. So exploring, exploring their stories are talking to indigenous Japanese, the Ainu up in Hokkaido, and um, 
how they feel Japanese are not, are Okinawa that never used to be part of Japan, but uh, around 150 years ago became part of Japan. So they have a different identity. And so exploring all the different aspects of what it is to be Japanese. And I made a documentary of it because it's kind of a complex question and it's very hard to answer in, you know, a 10 or 20 minute video. Mm. Right, but you covered really extensively, like, you know, you just you mentioned Ainu, Okinawa to Zainichi, Korean, you know, uh, Korean immigrants a long time, time ago. And, um, you know, these people really had positive impact culturally to Japan, but they, it's, they don't try, the Japanese people do not officially recognize who's not 100% Japanese. And uh, this diversity issue is really, I think it's going to be a huge burden if they maintain that single-minded view to who Japanese people are. So I really thought your documentary is really valuable and uh, it's kind of inspiring. And yeah, I really appreciate you made it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was it was really hard <laughs> making the documentary. It was uh, quite a few years, and it is it can be you know a heavy topic and a complex topic. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad it's out there. And the reason it's initially it was uh, behind a paywall, so you had to buy it or rent it on Vimeo. But my goal was always right from the start to put it on YouTube after about a year or so, which I which I did, and so that. Anyone can can watch it and learn from it. Mm, right. So the, the name is again the being Japanese. It's two two parts. So yeah, this is great. And then what are the reactions to the documentary from the audience? Right. Um, well, for people who have um, you know uh, connections to Japan or that are Japanese, but not I guess the the stereotypical Japanese, I think they felt some catharsis by hearing the stories of other people and uh, that are that are like them. And they're like, oh, okay, I'm not the only one that has this issue. Um, are learning about things that they just never learned about before or maybe feeling more comfortable with themselves. So that's that's always nice to, to get messages from people who feel like they've been heard or their stories being told um, or they're learning something new about themselves or feeling more comfortable being themselves. Mm, that's very valuable. Because in Japan, um, that's the whole point of you made this one. In Japan, they don't get a chance to express or being um, discussed such an important issue of lack of diversity. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah, one talk I had with um, not a viewer, but actually one of the interviewees, she's Okinawan. And so for viewers who don't know, like Okinawa is a um, set of islands in the southern, most southern part of Japan. And um, so they always had a unique culture, like influenced a lot by Chinese, um, as well as American occupation as well. And um, so she was, you know, in the interview trying to figure out, well, am I Okinawan or am I Japanese? And I just said to her, like, why don't you just be both? You know, mm. you can be Okinawan and Japanese, like, you're a woman, you know, you're a university student, um, you know, you like a certain sport, um, like I'm a father, I'm a, you know, husband, I'm a brother, you know, like I'm a snowboarder, <laughs> mm. I'm a, I, you can be many different things, you know, you, like your identity just doesn't have to be a single thing. And so, um, yeah, I think that's a big part of 
what the conversation was with being Japanese is that maybe it's okay to have multiple identities. You just don't have to be a single thing all the time, you know? Mm, right. Well, because I grew up in Japan, I, I get that. Like, I have to be something officially recognized and you don't have to be. <laughs> you, you, you name it and uh, that's who you are. So, yeah, great. And uh, so what is the biggest takeaway for yourself from making videos about Japanese culture so far? Oh, that's a, that's a tricky one because... Um, you said earlier on in this uh, podcast that I sometimes had like a you know, like an eye to like pick out certain things that are unique about Japanese culture or see things in a different way. And now that I've been living in Japan for a while, I find it harder and harder to figure out like what's you know like a, a big takeaway from you know Japanese culture or what's unique about it. So I find sometimes I have to talk with people who are not familiar with Japan or come to Japan for the first time uh, or who aren't as deep into it and get their reactions about things. And so they see something, they're like, oh, wow, this is really unique. And I'm like, really? And then so I have to you know, try to explain to a Western audience about why this thing is unique or different or how it's done. Um, the biggest takeaway <laughs> from making videos about Japanese culture. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, I think, I mean, humans are just humans. People are just people, right? Mm. Um, and I think if we have a chance to understand each other, we have a lot more similarities than we have differences. Mm. Right. That is very true. And I think what you're doing in your video, I think it, at the end of the con conclusion always, we are the same. I think that's what I feel. And we share the same um, surprise or understanding of something that ostensibly looked very strange or interesting, but you get to the conclusion we are the same. So yeah, I completely agree. Right. Right. And I think you all, I used to be an observer, but now you're becoming kind of bridge, I think. Yeah, I hope to act as the bridge between cultures. Um, I think, again, the more we know about each other, the less, um, you know, problems there will be. Um, you know, I mentioned that with like with NATO, like maybe a kid, if they brought that to school in Canada, they might you know, be bullied, like, oh, that's so smelly. Like, why'd you bring that to class? Like, bros. But, you know, if they had seen the video, they'd be like, oh, that's that's the, the food we saw in the video. That's cool. Like, can I check it out? Can I try it? You know, like, a difference in attitude can be from such a simple thing as watching, you know, a video mm. and, and learning about uh, a different culture. Uh, yeah. So, and then, by the way, you know, um, those observations, like Japan is finally getting out of COVID and COVID became an interesting lens to a certain culture about people and how think, they think of and operate as a society or how you deal with the pandemic. So what did COVID show you about Japan's mindset and how the society works during the pandemic? Right. Um, I think there's both positive and negative aspects to it. Um, one of the positive things, I think, is that Japan, I mean, they all seem to like to follow the rules and get together to do something for the greater good. So I think in terms of all trying to be together to fight against COVID, 
initially, I think uh, that attitude was fairly prevalent. Whereas um, I think Canada did a fairly good job of being together in it as well, but there was probably a bigger percentage of society that was like, thought COVID was really against their individual rights and it was some conspiracy and, and whatnot. So, I mean, they had some people in Japan like that too, but just maybe percentage wise, it was a lot higher in, in Canada, people that, you know, were thinking more individualistic. But um, I think on a negative side is that because COVID never really, you know, it's, it's a new thing. There was no like rules or playbook for the Japanese government or Japanese people to follow. And so I think they were slow to change or adapt as the virus rapidly changed and the knowledge about it rapidly changed. And so I felt like Canada was better able to like change how we dealt with the pandemic quicker than Japan did. So that's where, you know, being, you know, collectivist versus individualist, like you can kind of see the difference I felt mm. in the response to the pandemic. And then now with, interestingly, I just saw this um, on Twitter, this video that, um, I don't know which branch of the Japanese government made it, whether it's, you know, a prefecture or the, the you know, the national government, but um, they're telling people like, when you're outside, it's okay not to wear masks. And, um, but if you go outside in, in Tokyo, at least, like, I, I'd say over 90% of the people wear masks, maybe it's above 95%. It's, it's, um, uh, people still wear masks a lot outside, although, I think the science on it would say like if you're outside, especially if you're not in some crowded area, if you're just like walking down the street, you know, uh, a mask is not really going to protect you that much. But I think it's that, you know, you don't want to feel like you're um, uh, doing something that might potentially harm some other people. You don't want to look bad. So everyone just wears masks. And even me, like, I feel like it's completely safe to wear not wear a mask outdoors when it's not a crowded area, but I still wear a mask because I don't want to stand out either. You know, I don't want to cause problems. So, mm. um, maybe that's a, a more negative aspect of it is like everyone's following each other, don't want to look bad. But I mean, the government's saying it's safe. Scientists are saying it's safe to do so, but they're still slow to change. Mm. Like, I think in general, Japanese people uh, have certain trust in the government. If they say something, they follow and see what happens and always err on the side of caution. That is probably, in general, that happens in a society. Um, yeah, and then uh, we started to hear that also, um, you know, I'm going to Japan because the country is open. And uh, right. so what is your advice for visitors to Japan who wants to discover the culture deeply and enjoy it um, the way you do? Right. <laughs> That's a bit of a, a tricky one, because if they're, you know, visitor Japan, they probably don't know anyone locally. But I, I think the best way to visit uh, uh, Japan or any new country is to to get with locals to have them, you know, show you around to if you're able to go into their homes and have meals with them um, or take you out to their favorite places. Uh, I think you learn so much more than just visiting the, the popular tourist sites. Mm. Um, and maybe an easier thing is like, in Japan, you can read um, blogs or you go on social media, on Instagram or YouTube or TikTok and see all the top spots or top things to do in Japan. Um, 
but you'll obviously find a lot of other tourists trying to do those same things. And you, you find that um, areas that maybe in the past were a little more, I, I would say, authentic are a little more like touristy now. Like um, Asakusa, it's a, it's a famous uh, temple area in Tokyo. I think I first went there you know, 20 years ago, and it was not nearly as crowded as it is nowadays. And I felt like that experience is a lo- lot more... I, I even know, like maybe authentic is not even the right word, but it was different. It was different from what it is now, where you see a lot more catering to tourists, whether it's the food they'd like to eat or the experiences they would like to have. Um, but if you went to different temples, even within Tokyo or outside of Tokyo or Kyoto, you'll get a more, I don't know, I guess, untourist experience mm. <laughs> and more what like locals would normally experience in this day and age. So, um, I mean, I think it's great to visit the tourist areas because they, they are like really fascinating. You'll have a great time, but maybe try to spend, uh, you know, some portion of your trip away from the, the tourist areas and maybe not even follow like the, the local guys, just like explore the neighborhood around and just randomly <laughs> go around. You'll find some cool stuff, I bet you. Mm, right. And maybe take a Japanese regular train, <laughs> like in your video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So what videos are you working on right now? There are so many that I forget which videos because I have a lot filmed and I'm just busy editing. Um, my next video, which I am working on, so I definitely know, is exploring the wealthy neighborhoods of Tokyo. Uh, I've never explored them before, so it's kind of interesting to see what a wealthy neighborhood looks like in Tokyo versus what I know a wealthy neighborhood looks like in Canada. That sounds interesting because I think what Japan is, relatively speaking, is a flat society. Like there's no massive uh, income differences, like in America or something like that. So I'm curious. Uh, I can't wait to see it myself. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think a big difference that I noticed is that. Um, the architecture of homes, the wealthy homes, you'll find that they'll have, like, I guess everyone uses an architect pretty much, the wealthier people. So they'll have some pretty unique looking homes in comparison to the average Japanese home. Mm, right. Yeah. Some yeah. of those, like, I can see, like, Dwell Magazine, <laughs> a featured building in Tokyo or something like that. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like you have multiple videos um, going on. Yeah. Like another one, um, the other series I'm working on is um, for Oshogatsu, which is Japanese New Year's. Mm. And so it's, um, I filmed it last year so that I could release it this year. And that's kind of looking at all the different things that uh, Japanese do uh, before and after New Year's. And New Year's is like the big celebration in Japan for people that don't know. Oh my Whereas God. in like America, you know, Christmas is the big thing. Well, <laughs> In Japan, it's it's New Year's, so right. It's almost combined like Thanksgiving and uh, uh, Christmas together. Like it's such a long, um, massive um, holiday. But it's not just a holiday, right? You clean clean up the house, clean up your mind, right. and <laughs> have a better year than this year. So yeah, I can't wait to see that. I can't wait to actually have it edited because that's a big job. It's probably going to be a two-parter, <laughs> a three-parter. I don't know. Yeah. When do you think it's going to be released? 
Well, I, I want to release um, the episodes before New Year's. So before the end of this year, I want to have both episodes released. Okay. So, well, I watch yeah. for it. So, and so what are your plans and dreams? I'm sure that you have a lot. Um, yeah, I think one of the plans or dreams is to um, get back to making videos that include more countries beyond Japan. So still do Japanese videos, but um, with the pandemic that hit, that that kind of really put all those plans on on hold, where I want to visit other countries and see, you know, and have the locals there show me unique aspects of their life. And then I thought with that, knowing how not just, you know, things in Canada and America work, but I want to go to like, say, the Netherlands, or I want to go to uh, Botswana, um, or before I had been to the Philippines and uh, South Korea, and the more countries that I can visit and, you know, learn about their cultures, I think the better I can understand Japanese culture or Canadian culture and make comparisons between them. Um, so I'd like to continue visiting other countries and learning about other cultures. Mm, interesting, right? Wow. Well, so it's going to be on uh, still your uh, life where I'm from? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the, at least the name allows me to do that, life where I'm from, right? <laughs> that's true. That is true. All right. So that's great. So where can we find your updates online and on social media? Um, well, of course, YouTube is the number one. So anytime I have a new video, it's always going to be on you know, my Life Where I'm From channel. And sometimes I put community posts up there. Um, I'm currently on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. It's all Life Where I'm From, the same handle. Um, but I'm not the most prolific uh, person on social media. So sometimes I update a few times a month. Sometimes it's once every few months. Yeah. Right. Well, I don't blame you because YouTube really is a lot of work. So I really appreciate your hard work and I can't wait to see new videos. Well, thank you very much. Right. So thank you so much for joining us today and um, well, good luck and uh, yeah, have a great new year and I look forward to your new year's video. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, have a great new year's as well. Alright, so listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japaneeds at heritageradionetwork.org or kikokatema.com. Japaneeds is a weekly program and is, it is always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Amen Spenjan, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Needs is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.